The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Well, hello there and welcome again to the Disability Law Show. Good to have you along for the ride. John Scholes here, but the brains of the operation, Tamara Gopian and James Fireman, Sam Firu, Tamarkin, LLP. Right off the top, always give you the contact information so you can reach out on your own time and take care of business as you see fit. Have a conversation with the guys anytime, one 855 Help at disabilityrights.ca or just disabilityrights.ca to uh, to reach the website. Guys, as always, we've got a flood of emails and questions coming in each week, so we'll get to those post-haste. But Tamar, uh, I'm going to throw it to you right off the top, my friend, with the uh, case of the day, week that was. What do you got cooking over there? Right, so case of the day. I'm itching to uh, share with our listeners this decision that came through from the Ontario Court of Appeal um, just a couple months ago not even, I, I, I want to say it's like six weeks ago, called Baker and Blue Cross. This is a decision actually that we've talked about on our shows, uh, in prior shows, because it was a you know landmark decision uh, involving a woman by the name of Sarah Baker, who uh, ended up taking her disability claim all the way through to trial and was very successful. And it was a jury trial. And for those who may not appreciate the difference, why is a jury trial so significant? It's because, well, number one, the insurance company, Blue Cross, wanted a jury trial, which is unusual for disability claims. And two, because of that, it makes it a public decision. Most disability litigation, and and there's very little, right, John? And, And so we see very few of them. So when we see these cases, we get very excited. But this one in particular is even more interesting because it is of public record. So she was successful at trial. It was a long drawn out uh, disability claim. She had a stroke in 2013 and she was paid disability benefits for a little while, but then was cut off, I think, two or three times during her claim. And each time Blue Cross kept saying to her, we want you to provide more information and basically prove to us that you're sick enough that you can't work and meet the test of total disability. Mm. Not terribly unusual. I think that part of it we see somewhat. I think the three cutoffs certainly were uh, a little bit onerous, but it sort of went from bad to worse from there. And they were intransigent, they cut her off in the end, and then she initiated a legal claim back in 2017. And then that took another few years before it actually saw the, the, you know, the day in court, which was back in 2022. And the reason why it was so significant was because the insurance company at every step and stage took the most difficult route it could to try and challenge Ms. Baker's disability claim. So they had medical evidence available to them that demonstrated she was totally disabled. They didn't do the proper you know, assessments. They kept relying on their own hired guns and their opinions that were obviously different than her own doctors to justify continuing to refuse the disability benefits. They did something like 375 hours of surveillance. I mean, I could go on, but in the end, it was basically very, very difficult litigation. And she had the wherewithal with her and her lawyers to actually take this all the way through to trial. And at the end of that, the jury awarded her a whole whack of compensation. They reinstated her. So she's back on claim. She had something like 220000 in past benefits paid. Uh, But what's more significant is the jury awarded a million and a half in punitive damages. So those are damages over and above what she was owed for disability benefits that are 
there to be a deterrent. This is where the court has decided, or in this case, a jury has decided that Blue Cross breached their duty of good faith and was so terrible in their handling of the claim and the litigation that they should be censured, that there should be a slap of the wrist saying, you breached your duty of good faith, yet all of this evidence, you were very selective in what you decided to do, and you buried your head in the sand essentially, and therefore should be punished. And so we were interested as disability lawyers to see how this was going to play out, because it is a very big award, the largest that we have seen across Canada in any disability litigation so far. And inevitably, it was appealed by Blue Cross to the Ontario Court of Appeal. So that's the next level above the trial level. And so it's a, a panel of judges in the Ontario Court of Appeal who looked at this and upheld the decision. So they agreed with the jury. They agreed with the first level decision that the one and a half million dollars in punitive damages was correct. And they, and they made so many so many great passages in the, in the decision. I don't want to get too into the weeds about the legals here, but the key thing for our listeners is it is unprecedented. It's not something that we see regularly, but it's certainly going to create an immense amount of leverage against disability insurers who do what Blue Cross did in this claim, which is to continue to ignore evidence establishing total disability. And that in and of itself is extremely helpful to allow us to get the kind of compensation that we need for our claimants. And so when the Court of Appeal looked at this and said, you know, we agree that, you know, it's it's one and a half million in punitive is, is appropriate. They even went on to say, like, it's a drop in the bucket, so to speak. It's something to the extent of, look, this was a systemic problem with the insurance company, you know, various people at the insurance company looked at this and decided to take the same approach. Um, you know, nothing less than a million and a half would really garner the attention of executives to, you know, at the company to deter them to do this, to make changes in the way that they're reviewing these kinds of files and handling these kinds of claims. And it was a real nod as well to Ms. Baker and her team to say, look, you know, very few claimants have the ability or even the means to wait out seven years before you get to a point where you get compensation. So really great decision. Like I said, very rare in our, in our disability world and something that I really wanted to start off talking um, at our shows about and curious what you have to say, James, what do you think? Uh, I, I think this was a wonderful decision. It, it's yeah. the, it, you're right. The trial decision, which, which came out in 22, we've talked about many times on this show. Um, and I do want to stress one thing for our listeners, which is that while this was a, a case that did in fact go to trial, that is very much the exception. Long-term disability cases exceedingly rarely ever get to trial. They almost always will resolve at or before mediation. And for those rare ones that go beyond almost invariably they'll resolve shortly after that. It is so unusual for a case to go this far. And for many reasons that you've already discussed, it can be very difficult for, for a claimant to wait that long. And for the insurers, there's often a lot of exposure. So notwithstanding that this is a very important decision, I don't want anyone to be left with the impression that if you start litigation against your insurer, that this is a likely outcome, that you're likely to have to wait you know, six, seven years to get to trial. That's not the case. Uh, it's typically about 10 to 12 months from the time you start until it's resolved. So that's point number one. But point number two, as you've gone to, Tamara, is the impact that this case has as a precedent. 
So the original case, as decided, and as you mentioned, decided by a jury, was certainly very helpful. Uh, the the $1.5 million award was not just the highest award we've seen for a disability case. That's the highest punitive damages award in Canada ever, any kind of wow. case. Yeah, uh, really, really big. Uh, and so what this did is it creates that possibility. It doesn't mean that every case... Uh, every long-term disability case is going to result in $1.5 million in punitive damages, of course. Nor does it mean that every case that has a exposure for punitive damages will be that high. But it means that that is on the spectrum. But because it was decided by a jury, which for long-term disability cases is still more of an exception, insurers would often say in response to arguments that I would frequently make about this being sort of the high end of the scale now, that no, that's just a jury, a judge wouldn't go that high, which is why I was kind of surprised that Blue Cross decided to appeal the decision. Because when you appeal the decision, as you mentioned, Tamar, it goes in front of a panel of appellate judges at the Ontario Court of Appeal. And that means that they are going to have to write a decision. When it's decided by a jury, as it was at trial, there is no written decision about the reasons why they decided to award punitive damages. But for an appeal, the judges have to issue that decision. You talked about that. And so now we have the rationale of three judges from the Ontario Court of Appeal that talk about why this was an appropriate award of punitive damages. And the insurers, not just Blue Cross, but all the insurers are now stuck with that. That is the law of the land, certainly in Ontario. And it is going to be a very persuasive case for all of the other jurisdictions we, we practice in, too. This is a case that's going to be referred to in literally every single long-term disability case across the country. So this is definitely a landmark decision. It is something that changes the, the balance of power in, in long-term disability cases. It is a very good thing. Now, does this mean that when you're applying for your LTD benefits, you should now expect that the insurers are going to change their practices? I don't think so. I think they're still probably going to operate the same way when you're applying. But once you start litigation, my expectation is that we're going to see insurers be even more willing than they have in the past mm -hmm. to come to the table and pay what they ought to be paying. They've been willing in the past, but now I think it's going to be even better going forward. Yeah, that was the one thing. I know we got a break uh, tomorrow. It's the one thing I was wondering, you know, yeah. you having worked in the insurance business, this ruling comes out. I just picture all these other insurance companies also standing up like a bunch of meerkats looking going, uh-oh, uh-oh, what's this yeah. all about? They got to be they got to be on on guard now, right? They are. And and so we have lots of discussions, both James and I and the rest of our team with lots of lawyers on the other side. And we get these candid comments, you know, and we're sharing, hey, have you guys seen this decision? And yeah, they, they're not happy about it. They're, they're not going to tell us exactly how far up the chain it's gone with these insurers, but I, I got to think that it has gone well up. And, you know, I think rightly so, because when you dig into the details of this, you know, it's the things that we talk about on our shows. They did not do a proper analysis on the transferable skills. They relied on a medical paper review. They delayed doing an independent medical assessment, right? They relied on surveillance. All of the things that we talk about regularly that insurers do and they did, they do incorrectly in applying their decision to deny people 
benefits when they legitimately have a right to it. And so I think it went from bad to worse from Blue Cross's perspective. But I do think that this is going to have a more widespread impact. And whether that's going to necessarily change the way they make decisions, eh, probably not on a granular level, but it's certainly going to allow people like James and I uh, some great leverage and some good opportunities to to get some good outcomes for our clients, which is what we need and what we want to do at the end of the day. Let's get into that uh, short break, guys. Lots more to go. Emails are coming in, and also you have the opportunity to send us something to mydisabilityquestions.com. That is all coming up right here on the Disability Law Show. So stick around. We're coming right back. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. You bet. We're back. Thanks for hanging on through the break. John Scholes here, host and uh, the brains. Really, all the answers can be had and found and forwarded to James Fireman and Tamara Gopian anytime. Sam Firu, Tamark, and LLP reaching out for you. one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. Guys, if you want to get into our first email, they're piling up, so we'll whittle down the pile a little bit. Uh, Kevin's first one up says, guys, I'm on LTD. And it's been recommended by my doctor that I continue physio and massage therapy. I have since used all my personal allowances for these services and am now to pay out of pocket. The insurance company said they would continue to pay for these services, but only if provided by their sponsored facility. Am I entitled to any addition coverage slash benefits in this situation? Without these treatments, my conditions will only worsen, making my recovery and potential return to work less likely. Do I have any options? What are my options? Yeah. It's unfortunate because uh, what people have generally, people like Kevin, is a group disability plan in which they will have disability benefits, but typically also extended health coverage. But that extended health coverage will have limits. So it'll say something to the effect of, well, you get, you know, let's say $1,000 in physiotherapy treatment or 17 sessions or whatever that is. And disability insurers are notorious for saying to claimants, hey, you got to use up all of those uh, extended health benefits. If you're not using them, you know, you're not getting appropriate treatment. And certainly we're not going to pay for that, even if it's the same insurance company, by the way. That's what makes it extra confusing. So you're like, okay, well, hey, the same insurer is paying me disability benefits. Why is it that they're not paying for my treatment? And so the the unfortunate part of it is, is that if the LTD part of that policy, of that disability policy, doesn't say they have to pay for some kind of treatment or rehabilitation. It does not require the disability part of the insurer to actually pay for these kinds of services. Except, and as Kevin says, if they decide that they want to actually provide that kind of rehabilitation. Now, they only do that though, Kevin, if they think they're going to be able to get this claim closed for you sooner than later because they're not going to spend money on rehabilitating you if they think they're going to have you on claim longer than it's worth. So in other words, and there's one insurer who does this a lot, they'll do like a cost-benefit analysis and they'll say, okay, look, our policy doesn't require us to necessarily pay rehabilitation um, or some kind of treatment. But if we do offer this individual, say, seven weeks of a work hardening program, then it means by week eight, we can cut him off or he can be off claim and he's back at work then it may make some sense for them to actually invest in paying for those services. But as Kevin points out, you know, you've got the downside of being required to attend the insurer's uh, facility. 
And those facilities are definitely getting paid by the insurance companies. So it creates a bit of bias there, obviously. You're not dealing with a service provider who has your best interest at heart. So at the out of the gates, I would say to Kevin, I would much prefer to see him use his own treatment facility. I can absolutely understand the financial constraints to it. But then what's the downside? The downside is you've got to be beholden to the insurer's facility who then you know has their primary requirement to the insurer and getting you, you know, off their facility and off claim as soon as possible. And so, you know, I think that when you're thinking about these options, you want to try and decide with yourself and your own medical team, say your family doctor or primary care treatment provider, as to what's best. Can you, you know, perhaps delay payments? Can, is there a renewing of benefits? Do you have a spouse perhaps that you can access, you know, uh, coverage for under these facilities and perhaps then not rely entirely on the insurer's treatment provider and their plan, uh, but by the same token, you know, realizing and recognizing that if this treatment is needed and it's required and has to be paid for, then you may have to then relegate yourself to having to deal with the insurer and their provider. Though it's not ideal, that would be my my last choice option for Kevin in the circumstances. James, what do you think? That's exactly the way I treat it as well, too. Yeah. My, my, you know, I, I prioritize my client's health above all else. And so the focus is always on what is the thing that is going to treat your condition best. So in a perfect world, you would get treatment from your own treatment provider, someone recommended by your GP, someone that you're comfortable with, someone who does not have a financial relationship with your insurer, first and foremost. That's in a perfect world. Or you pay for it out of pocket if you have the money to do it. But most people who are uh, in a disability situation who are or who are on claim don't have that capacity, that financial ability to pay for it out of pocket. And so I agree with Tamar. I agree with you on this. Um, if you are out of benefits, if you don't have any more extended health benefits, you don't have access from a spouse's policy, you can't afford to pay out of pocket, but you need the treatment. In that scenario, yeah, I would I, I would take the treatment that is being offered if offered by the insurer but the one thing i do want to point out is where treatment is offered by an insurance company when not required under the policy it is almost always get back to work focused you mentioned work hardening as an option and that's usually the type of program we're talking about something designed where at the end of it you are ready to return to work often simulating parts of whatever your job is on a day in day out basis and getting you to a point where at the end of six or eight or 12 weeks whatever it is you're ready to go back to work and that can be useful if you are at that point in your recovery that you're ready to start down that road but typically speaking that is what they're going to offer they don't typically offer the more granular physiotherapy that you know you might need in the acute phase after suffering a traumatic injury or uh, you know ongoing psychotherapy, although sometimes we do see that um, as part of a larger program. The point being, you want to take a look at what they are offering and make sure that it's appropriate. So, if you are in a position where you're not able to afford or find some other coverage to pay for benefits at a service provider of your choosing, and your insurer is offering you treatment, but it has to be at their uh, own facility, then I would first go to your GP with the treatment plan provided by the insurer 
and have your GP review it and make sure that it's appropriate. Make sure that you're ready for the type of treatment that they're offering and that that type of treatment is appropriate for your stage of the recovery. Because if your GP says it's not, in other words, if it's a work hardening program and your GP is saying like, listen, you know, my patient is, you know, at best a year or two away from being in any position to be able to go back to work, then a work hardening program is completely inappropriate. There'd be no purpose to it. So I wouldn't even bother in that scenario. It's only if you're at a point where maybe you can return to work in the next few months, and this might help you get over that hump that it might be appropriate. What I would say, though, is if you are in a position that you're not able to afford on your own, uh, but what's being offered by the insurer is something that you would like to be able to access, just not from their provider, you can push back somewhat. In other words, if you can get them to acknowledge that they feel that this treatment is necessary, there shouldn't be any particular reason why they should need to go to one particular provider. And so if they've acknowledged to you that this particular treatment they feel is necessary for you, and you have another option that you present to them, and they refuse that, that does put them in a difficult situation. I'm not telling you that they're going to agree that you can go to a different provider and that they'll pay for it. They probably won't. But if that is what plays out and they refuse to pay for treatment at a provider of your choosing, that can be used down the road if and when they cut off your benefits. Yeah, that's a good uh, point. As a, feather, as a feather in your cap, as a piece of ammunition that they have not acted in good faith because they, as long as the treatment provider you're suggesting is qualified, they shouldn't have any particular preference. It shouldn't matter to them whether you're going to someone that you trust and someone who perhaps is geographically closer to you, making it easier for you to get that treatment as opposed to this other facility that they have a relationship with. That shouldn't matter to them. But it well, does for other reasons. Yeah. And so, you know, that's something that can be used against them down the road. And you know what I was thinking about, James, as you were making that point, which I think is excellent, is, you know, mental health claims. Like, I think we've assumed that Kevin perhaps is looking at it from a, you know, physical disability perspective. And, and so you can see these facilities and maybe it's physiotherapy or chiropractic treatment. But I think about those claimants that we have with mental health conditions and you know, it can be very difficult to have to share with someone entirely new your whole health history and what has led you to the point where you're ultimately either diagnosed with, you know, perhaps depression, perhaps it's post-traumatic stress disorder, and those are the kinds of conditions that put you off work. And so we have lots of clients who come and share with us that, look, I just don't really want to have someone new, you know, do I have the right or the ability to push back to the disability insurer in a situation like that? And I agree with James that, that would be the right situation in which to say, look, just because I can't afford the psychotherapy doesn't necessarily mean that I want to start fresh with a whole new provider. The continuity could then be a good basis to justify to the insurer, hey, let me continue to see the therapist that I've made progress with, but I need you guys to fund that treatment. Yeah, that, that's completely correct, especially in a mental health claim where you already have an existing relationship. That's a scenario where I would not accept treatment from a provider suggested by the insurer, particularly in place of treatment that you already are receiving. I don't think that's appropriate at all. And if an insurer insists on that, I think that is opening up a very strong bad faith argument and exposing them to those punitive damages that we were talking about at the top of the show. I think that's entirely inappropriate 
for them to insert themselves or worse yet sever a an existing therapeutic relationship in a mental health program. As mentioned, guys, the contact information, one 821 5900 want to bounce over to mydisabilityquestions.com. You can use that any time. It's free. It's searchable. And uh, it can be anonymous as well. Uh, from it says, guys, is there a law? We've had this question before, but it's good It's good going through this again, guys. Is there a law regarding long-term disability insurer providing me with a copy of my personal information? I was sent to see a specialist, their request, and the report went back to the insurance company, but did not go over to my family physician. Do I have a right to ask for a copy? Well, you certainly can ask for a copy. Uh, In most provinces, and I'm pretty sure this is the case in Ontario, uh, you're entitled to a copy of of your full file from your insurance company. They have to actually produce that. So even if you don't get it, from your family physician, even if it's not sent to your family physician, uh, you're entitled to ask for a full copy of the file. And so after that uh, would have been finished, the report would have been sent back, you would be entitled to ask for the entire file and it should be included in there. Uh, Likewise, with your family physician, anything that is sent to your family physician or produced by your family physician is your information. So you have the right to ask for your full file from your own doctor if you want to. That is your information when you want it. There are often going to be fees attached to that. You should recognize that and also recognize when you're dealing with your family doctor. Sometimes they might get a little bit put out if you're asking for your entire file, especially if they don't understand the context. So I wouldn't do it just to do it. But I would, if you want something in particular, I wouldn't hesitate to ask your family doctor about it. Tomorrow, what do you think, pal? Well, so I think about scenarios where the insurer has sent someone for some kind of an assessment. I think maybe this question was leading to that. You know, even an independent medical assessment, for example, you know, one of those uh, hired guns that the insurer, you know, will get and have you assessed by one of their so-called experts Hmm. to pop out certain answers and responses about how you're doing. And in a situation like that, the insurers can be quite resistant in providing a copy of that report but you're entitled to it. And so you should either insist that you get a copy of it uh, and or insist that a copy be sent to your doctor because you want to see what it says in there and you want to make sure that your own treatment providers get the opportunity to respond or even yourself. Maybe there was errors in there. Maybe there was something that was incorrectly reported. And so especially if the insurer is going to rely on a report like that, I would insist upon and I agree with James that it can be a little bit hairy to try and you know get that cooperation from your own doctor, but at the end of the day, you're entitled to that information, though there isn't a specific law or a policy provision requiring you to obtain a copy. That's the downside. But generally speaking, you are entitled to those kinds of reports and information. Lots more to go, guys. Got to slide into a quick break. Bert, you are up next. Thank you so much for your email. You can always send one along as well. If you're listening to the show and want to partake, you can uh, do so at help at disabilityrights.ca and reach James or Tamar by phone anytime. You might have that conversation off air, right? one 5900 More of the Disability Law Show is just ahead. Hang in there. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Disability Law Show, indeed. We are back. James Fireman, Tamara Gopian, reaching out to both of those uh, fine lawyers and friends of yours. You can do so with the firm anytime. one 821 5900 Doesn't cost a penny just to pick up a phone and ask some questions, right? Email, if you prefer, is help at disability. 
liabilityrights.ca. That's where we're going, guys. As mentioned, Bert, thank you so much uh, in advance for sending this along. Says, guys, I'm looking for a lawyer that has experience handling situations with a specific rehab provider hired by my insurer. I've already received a threatening letter from my insurer that my file is in review with possible termination of my benefits. My mental health is worse. I've relapsed, I'm a recovering alcoholic, after seven years sober and forced to attend these sessions that are solely based on fear and intimidation. I suffer from a variety of chronic mental health issues and my health is deteriorated significantly. I'm hoping your team can help. Wow. What do you think, tomorrow? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Bert, there's no question about it that we can help in situations like this. And it it actually goes back to some of the topics we were talking about in our prior segments of the show, that when you've got this kind of aggressive treatment plan in place, uh, and the experience that Bert is having is so negative, then you've got the insured, you know, the additional log on the fire is, look, I'm going to threaten you with cutting off your benefits if you don't attend, and we're still reviewing your file. I mean, all of that is the perfect storm really leading up to a good basis for us to challenge the insurer in circumstances like this. You know, courts have been really clear that if the insurer's actions in the way that they deal with their claimant aggravates their condition, makes it worse through the process, even the cutoff of the claim, then that warrants not only potentially getting your LTD benefits again, but also these extra contractual damages. And so, I'd want to understand a little bit more the nature of what's happening with Bert and and if he's got his own treatment providers and you know how involved they've been, um, especially when you talk about you know alcoholism and his sobriety being compromised and this kind of thing. I think it is important that you know, like James says earlier, you know the the, the health of our clients are number one, and so you want to make sure that, that that he's getting the treatment that he needs and being in the right facility. But looking at it, you know, just strictly from a disability law perspective, you know, there are provisions in the disability policies, one in particular that says, if your disability arises out of a substance use or abuse situation, like alcoholism, for example, and you're not in a rehab facility or you're not getting specific treatment for that condition, then that can exclude you entirely for disability benefits. Now, I don't agree with this provision. We've had lots of discussions in our group about, you know, whether this violates human rights and sorts all sorts of things. But the provision itself is there and it's there for insurers to do exactly what they are doing, unfortunately, which is to leverage that against valid disability claims. Because last I checked, alcoholism was is a valid disability, um, to, you know, bring claims to an end prematurely. And so when that happens, it does afford us a very good opportunity to advocate for our clients in circumstances like this and does open that door to additional damages, additional areas of compensation against the insurer. James, what do you think? Well, when I see those provisions, I immediately bristle. Uh, I, I think they're entirely unconstitutional. I don't think they can be enforced, particularly any provision that says that you have to be in any particular type of treatment facility. That is something that should in should only be determined by a medical professional, not by what's dictated under an insurance policy. What the proper treatment is for any one individual is going to vary depending on their circumstances and the extent of 
their particular disease, their alcoholism or their substance abuse issues. It's not always appropriate for someone to be in a particular type of program. And so where policy requires that, and that's the basis for a denial, I would push hard against it. And I don't think you're going to see insurers in litigation try and defend that because I think they know it's a loser. The other uh, thing that comes up in substance abuse cases is where there is a relapse, which is what Bert's talking about here. And there is significant case law out there talking about a relapse in the context of a disability claim. When someone has a substance abuse issue and they're on disability and they have a relapse, insurers will very often point to that as a basis for saying, okay, well, you're not mitigating, you're, you know, you've relapsed, you're not doing what you can in order to get over your disability and get back to work. And the courts are having none of it. They're having absolutely none of that because relapsing in the context of someone with a substance abuse disease is part of what is expected. That is part of the normal course of recovery. It happens. And that does not mean you're not trying. And any insurer that says otherwise and tries to argue that in court is going to be hit with a punitive damages claim. Like that is not something that flies anymore. The courts understand this. We're not uh, living where we were, you know, 20, 30 years ago when people just said, you know, buck up, get over it for substance abuse or for mental health issues. That's not the way the world works anymore. We understand better what this is and how these diseases works. And that's just not an acceptable answer from an insurer. I think, guys, we got time for a uh, question or two from MyDisabilityQuestions.com. Let's get into this one. Love this. A little bit of math, but here we go. It says, if my LTD claim was denied approximately two years ago and I returned to work now, but I'm on disability again for the same reason within the last three months, is there any legal recourse for that decision? I was previously denied because they thought I could work at another job and was not totally disabled. What do you think, guys? Wow. Okay. I'm trying to wrap my head around this. I know one. the math. Wow. So if you were previously denied approximately two years ago and returned to work, and now you're on disability again, the first thing that pops out is that it was two years ago, uh, approximately two years ago. So starting with that, if it was just under two years, because it's approximate, if it was just under two years, then you could bring litigation to challenge the denial. If it's just after, you couldn't. There's a two-year limitation period that is pretty rigid and if you are beyond that you can't bring litigation but the issue is that this person went back to work uh, and is now on disability again and virtually all policies are going to have a recurrence provision in there that says that if you do go back to work then it's only part of the same claim if you are again disabled usually it's within six months sometimes there's another time frame but it wouldn't be two years so this, this would almost certainly be a new claim in any event because this person's been back at work for most of the past two years and during that time wouldn't have any benefits claimable because presumably their income would offset any potential benefits during that time period. So the short answer is you wouldn't really be in any position, even if it's under two years, to bring a claim for that denial. Uh, but you might have a claim for a new disability over the last three months. Let's take a short break, I absolutely guys. Absolutely agree. Oh, sorry, Tamar, go ahead. I didn't know no, I didn't know okay. you had something to say. I just, go ahead. I just yeah, wanted to lend my 
Yeah, I just wanted to lend my agreement that, you know, you want to make a fresh application in a situation like this and then see how the insurer will deal with it, whether it's a recurrence or a fresh claim. Either way, make that application and be mindful of that two-year limitation period. Quick and done. We'll get to that in one more email or two, guys, with our uh, remaining time. In the meantime, here's that email address, help at disabilityrights.ca and one 855 You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All right, back to Disability Law Show. A few minutes to go. We'll get to another email, guys. And for any time, if you're listening and want to send one along and participate, we'd love to have you. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. Carly, I'm next. Says, I live in a relatively small town and accessing treatment for my mental health issues has been nearly impossible. I even had a hard time getting to see my family doctor, but he has at least referred me to a psychiatrist. I've been waiting months to get an appointment, though. I'm worried my disability insurer is going to use this as a reason to cut me off. In the last call I had with my case manager, she told me the policy requires I get certain treatment or else I'm cut off. Anything else I can do? Yeah. There's a theme. There's a theme here, right? So let's talk about this specific provision. It is a provision that says that you are entitled to disability benefits, first and foremost, if you meet their test of disability, fine. And also, if you are getting appropriate treatment for your health condition that is disabling you. And that appropriate treatment requirement, some policies have it really close with the total disability test. Some policies have it buried in the back. But I can assure you that the adjusters know that they're there and they will use it in these ways as leverage against individuals like Carly, unfortunately. And so what happens with the reality in most of the jurisdictions that we practice in, which is accessing treatment and the right health care in a short period of time has been very, very difficult, especially if you live in a remote area like Carly does you may have one psychiatrist servicing a very large area. Certain places in Ontario come to mind like Thunder Bay and Timmins, Sudbury and so on. I have been told that getting mental health treatment in those kinds of areas is virtually impossible. And so what happens then in a situation like that when you've got your primary treatment provider supporting your disability claim, Obviously, the insurer has agreed, at least for a period of time, that you, yes, are totally disabled as a result of your mental health conditions, not capable of working and paying that benefit. But then they get impatient. They get impatient having to wait out, you waiting out to get the treatment that you need or the more specific treatment that you need. And so the challenge becomes, you know, what's the insurer going to do in a situation like that? There's not much Carly can do, frankly. I mean, what I typically will advise is try and access as much available treatment as you can in the meantime. So whether that means, you know, considering medication or considering considering group therapy, perhaps you try and get a handful of, um, you know, psychotherapy sessions. I, you know, again, this is all driven by Carly and her own doctor trying to decide, look, what is the best course of treatment? But obviously she needs to see the psychiatrist Otherwise, the doctor wouldn't have recommended that, and they're waiting out that time frame. And so I think it is appropriate in a situation like that, that there is a bit of pushback from Carly's own doctor saying, hey, we're doing everything we can. Here are the ongoing symptoms. This is the treatment plan. We do need to have her seen by the psychiatrist. We have sent the referral. You know, we expect it will be, you know, another three months, six months, whatever it is until she's, you know, 
able to see the psychiatrist and then we can course correct on the treatment and so on and so forth. And so that then puts in front of the insurer a challenge, so to speak, that Carly is not getting appropriate treatment, right? I would argue in a situation like that, if her own doctor is, is providing that information to the insurer, then it's not a lack of treatment. It's just simply a lack of availability of specific treatment. It's a nuance, I get it. But, you know, in a situation like this, I don't like the idea that the adjuster is saying to Carly, well, if you don't, we're going to cut you off. Well, that doesn't seem to make much sense. If the symptoms are ongoing and are trying to be managed as best as possible medically, then by all means, those disability benefits should continue. But I recognize the reality of the wait times, and I also recognize the strategy that disability insurers have been applying the last couple of years as these wait times grow and the impatience and, frankly, the bottom line, which is that they have to continue to pay that monthly benefit unless they can find another reason to cut people off prematurely. James, what do you think? I, I agree with everything that you're saying, of course. I, I think we're, the way you have to look at this is put yourself in the position where the insurer is about to make a decision. You don't want to provide them with any ability to say, you could have done this, but you didn't. You could have done this, but you didn't. It's a much weaker argument for the insurer to say, you didn't have psycho or, or psych psychiatric care uh, but, you know, we recognize there was none available. That is a silly argument and no judge is ever going to accept that. But if you were never referred for psychiatric care in the first place, that's a different thing. The insurer can say, well, you know, whether or not there is available psychiatric care, you were not, you weren't even put on a waiting list or you never looked for those other options that might be available while you were waiting. So make sure that the insurer doesn't have any ability to say, you could have done this or you could have done that. If you've covered those bases, then you've done everything that you can. That doesn't ensure that the claims handler is going to approve your benefits. They will often rely on silly reasons for denying a claim, but you've certainly put yourself in a much better position if you've covered off all of those bases. And this is a recurring theme. This is something that I see on a fairly regular basis, particularly with people calling me in initial consultations where they are in remote areas. And this is a, true across the country because the mental health care, uh, the availability across the country is very difficult, not just in rural areas, but particularly there. And so what happens often is a doctor will say, well, you do need psychiatric care, but it's going to take like two years. So let's just go with this other option. I understand that from a practical standpoint, especially from the doctor's position. But my recommendation is if your doctor is saying that you need psychiatric care, it's just not readily available, that they put the referral in anyway. Even if it's going to be a two-year wait, put the referral in. First of all, then the insurer can't say that you don't need psychiatric care because there's no referral made or that you haven't done what you can to get it. You've got the referral, nothing you can do about the wait time. It's just you've got to wait until it's ready. And the other thing is, you know, from a medical standpoint, if you do need the psychiatric care, you might as well get the referral in now and get on the wait list. Hopefully, if it's a two-year wait, hopefully by the time you're ready to, they're, they're ready to see you, your situation has resolved. But if not, then you're at least in a much better position to get that care at that point in time. And you're not going to have to wait an additional two years to get the treatment. So I strongly recommend that if you're 
family doctor is hesitant to give you a referral simply because there isn't available psychiatric care, that you push back a little bit and you ask for the referral to be made anyway. And even if you have to wait on a, on a list for two years, so be it. It puts you in a much better position both legally and medically. Lots of ground covered this hour, guys. Appreciate it. We're going to uh, wrap it up for now and be back with another show, of course, next week. In the meantime, reaching out to James Tamar, simple, simple, simple. That's how we get the show happening with the emails as well. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Email right there. The phone number, one 855 And then finally, you can use the uh, website, mydisabilityquestions.com and your smartphone, tablet, desktop, whatever. Ask your questions that way. And they might appear on a future show as well so we'll catch you next time here on the disability law show the preceding was a paid commercial program unless otherwise identified the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser the opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of chorus entertainment